Good afternoon. It's the end of May, it's after Memorial Day, and it's time for IAB Real, where the leaders of the Interactive Advertising Bureau get real with the issues of the day for our industry and frankly, for ourselves as well. Glad to have you with us. I'm here with my co-host, David Cohen, the president of the IEB. I'm Randall Rothenberg. I'm the CEO of the IEB. And we want to get real with each other on a series of issues that are pretty topical right now as we enter into the summer season, as lockdowns are beginning to ease, as America gets back to business. We want to find out from each other how the media, advertising, and marketing industries are going to get back to business. David, hello. Hi there. Nice to be here. Good to see you. Great. It's been about 10 minutes. It has been about uh, 10 minutes. You know, I have my new microphone. It's a Yeti microphone. I'm really quite excited about it. I can tell. You are almost levitating with joy. I have the same microphone, so I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to going to battle. Microphone well, to microphone. Here I thought that the reason you sounded so good is you're so smart, but now as it turns out, no, no. microphone. You have learned that by now. David, let me ask you a question. Uh, IEB has released the final IEB PWC ad spending figures for 2019. And we also released at the same time our latest benchmark for ad spending during the lockdown. Taking, taken together, there are no surprises here. Digital advertising continued its double digit growth uh, during 2019. And during the, uh, the lockdown, advertising of all sorts plummeted after we quarantined. But I think, I think these two kind of simple, uh, obvious patterns obscure a bigger question that the industry is asking, at least kind of in a sotto voce way. And that is, will the COVID crisis increase the concentration of advertising spend in a uh, smallish set of digital platforms or will it encourage a rediscovery of uh, multiple alternative mechanisms for marketing? What do you think? Well, that's a very good question, uh, Randall. And yes, we're, I'm super excited about the release of our, uh, our data, um, which is happening momentarily. Uh, and you're right, there was nothing that was um, uh, shockingly uh, apparent, but, but I think that you're at the, the crux of the issue, which is uh, as we kind of come out of this pandemic or emerge on the other side, do marketers stay with the tried and true, or do they start kind of uh, pushing themselves into testing and exploring uh, new areas? And this was something that um, I've been thinking about for, for quite some time, because I, um, throughout my entire career, I've tried to think about what is the appropriate time for market innovation, testing and exploring. So we asked this question uh, on a recent um, council that we had with a bunch of agency leaders and I was super pleased to see that 88% uh, of them said they believe that COVID-19 will accelerate market innovation as opposed to driving marketers back to kind of the, you know, the warm embrace of the tried and true, which is, which is awesome. I mean, the, the, the phrase that comes up in my mind, and I think I might have said it to you before, so I apologize for repeating, but it's easier to change, you know, a car's tires when you're going 10 miles an hour than when you're going 75 miles an hour. And one could argue that uh, the industry has slowed down as a result of the pandemic. So now is the best time to kind of try something new. So, you know, this touches on one of the, uh, the paradoxes that's always uh, puzzled me and amused me in the ad biz. And it's, um, 
it's uh, it's more than a paradox. It's actually a kind of a form of schizophrenia about uh, oligopolies and monopolies. I mean, the, the ad agencies, you know, I, I was covering the advertising business for the New York Times back in the 1980s. And I remember in those days, the ad agencies hated the dominance of the three broadcast networks. But boy, once cable and the internet happened, they mourned the simplicity of uh, those days where you could kind of pick up the phone and do 80% of your business with one or two calls. I mean, similarly, the, the TV networks, they absolutely hated Nielsen. My phone would ring with one complaint after another about, uh, about Nielsen. But geez, those TV networks loved the simplicity of having a single set of numbers to base their businesses on. So it seems that, I don't know, the real story of internet advertising for this era uh, it seems to be in no small part history repeating itself. Uh, brands and agencies complain about the duopoly, but they really want to get back to a place where they can do 80% of their business with a handful of phone calls. So that's why I'm, I kind of question whether what we were hearing on our agency leaders call was real, whether they're really in favor of innovation or whether they just want to get back to some form of simple way of doing business. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great question, and and I think that if I were to parse it apart into a couple of different uh, dimensions, the first one that comes to mind is there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that there is a need in the industry for automation. So there is a need for taking some of that complexity and simplifying some of it that that exacts a significant human toll. Uh, lots of folks required to do uh, lots of the work and making that uh, more of an automated. Process. So I think automation is the first thing that immediately comes to mind. The second thing that comes to mind is, you know, there's a paradox of choice in the media and marketing industry today. There is just so much uh, at our footsteps. Uh, um, we can choose lots of different uh, opportunities, and that's not great either. So I, I kind of parse it into kind of two dimensions. One, at the molecular or atomic level, there needs to be some commonality. So there needs to be something that binds all of this together so we don't have to recreate the wheel every time. So whether that is an impression, currency, measurement, something that is universal across all of these things. And if we have commonality across the molecular and atomic level, we can have a whole host of different animals and organisms and ways to kind of go to market. So I think that there needs to be some standardization and there needs to be some kind of uh, opportunity for us to flex our innovation muscle. Does that, does that make sense? Does that yeah, resonate it, with you? Yeah, it, may, it makes sense. But, but I, I guess it, it opens up another, another question and maybe another can of worms. I mean, uh, historically, the agencies, first when they were integrated and the media function was a function, and then when everything unbundled and the media agencies became freestanding, I mean, the business was based in no small part on hiring enormous gobs of cheap labor to, uh, to run in, uh, cranks in the pre-XL days and then cranks in the XL days. Um, and the, the logic of that becoming more automated so the actual talent force in the media agency side can become much more consultative and strategic, much more yeah. akin to what a McKinsey does. It's always made sense, but they've had a hard time getting there. There, there seems to be a, um, a, a kind of a, just a, a stickiness around this, you know, uh, cheap, 
uh, kind of low attainment labor doing things rather than shrinking the size of these companies and focusing in on strategic guidance. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the obstacles are. Yeah, I mean, so the, you know, the obvious one is when your compensation structure is based on being paid on an FTE basis, on a kind of per person basis or amount of hours that you're putting against a piece of business, inevitably, you're incentivized to put more people and more uh, hours on the business and, and thus drive more revenue. I think the other exciting part of the business today is that the conversation is clearly changing so that it is not an FTE-based model. It is now kind of a, a model that is focused on uh, outcomes as opposed to outputs. So it's not about just the cranks and the optimization, but actually doing something. Are you driving sales? Are you driving a sales surrogate? So as the business pivots in that way, and, and listen, I, I take what you say with a, a, you know, a pound of salt. We've been talking about this stuff for some time, but I do think, I feel like we are moving the needle over the past year or two to much more of an outcomes-based compensation model. And that I think will incentivize the entire ecosystem to spend less time doing the, the menial or the unflattering tasks and more time on kind of strategy and upper funnel uh, mm. activity. Yeah, okay. Let me that, ask you a question, if you don't mind. Sure. So of, of all the conversations that you're having with brands, uh, we've had lots of good convenings with brands over the uh, past couple of weeks. Um, what, are the, what are the things that, what are the qualities that you believe that you've seen uh, among the brands that are the most resilient uh, during this, town, this uh, downturn? What, what are the things that those brands are doing, stand for, uh, et cetera? Well, well, the first one that leaps to mind is uh, they make things that can be used indoors. <laughs> so, you know, and that kind of sounds like a joke, but it's not. It, it, it's incredibly striking when you look at the statistics, uh, the spikes in sales beyond anything you would possibly imagine, beyond, way beyond what happens during normal times in things like household cleaning products, food, whatnot. Okay, so food I understand because you can't go out to eat um, at all. So you're going to order more food for yeah. inside the home. Uh, but I'm, I'm finding it uh, interesting uh, the degree to which things like cleaning products are spiking beyond what they are during normal times. It's kind of an indicator that people are uh, um, just to stave off boredom or to make the uh, four walls look less grimy. Um, they're just cleaning more. But beyond that, and getting a little more serious, you know, uh, I, what's been striking on our brand council leadership calls is the degree to which these, these companies, especially the disruptor brands, are doubling down on mission. Uh, we've seen in our past research that, that how many of these companies have a, have a mission basis. Uh, you know, we were talking to Randy Goldberg, the, uh, the CEO and uh, co-CEO and co-founder of Bombas, the sock company. And when they were founded, you know, five, seven years ago, they were founded very explicitly with the idea that for every pair of socks bought, they're going to give a pair away to a, uh, to a homeless shelter. And they've given hundreds of millions of pairs of socks away. Uh, but that's not no longer singular. We see more and more and more of uh, not just these brands, but incumbent brands also rediscovering the importance of mission. Uh, a lot of that is rooting in a community. It could be a geographic community. It could be another kind of community. Uh, we also had on our uh, brand council town hall, Doug Satzman, who is the, uh, the CEO of Express Spa, 
So uh, you've seen ExpressBuy. I don't know if, if yes, you've ever- Yes, I could use an ExpressBuy. Just yeah. Now. yeah. So, so, you know, they're in, uh, I think, 23 states, 50, 60 airports. They give the massages and things like that. So obviously, you know, their business uh, needs to, uh, to pivot. One of the things that they're uh, doing is uh, 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 planning on using that real estate for testing, COVID testing. But they, the frontline workers are, the, are their primary object right now because they think that that's part of the mission. Keep the airports running, keep the workers safe. So it's, to me, interesting to see that mission is part of the resilience. And I think the third thing that I would say is, um, you know, obviously uh, flexibility up and down the supply chain. You're he we're hearing yeah. this from all the disruptor brands uh, that, you know, if, if we've only been using uh, a handful of suppliers, if those suppliers are in other, other countries, uh, that's too risky. We need to localize more. We need more choice. So I'd say those are the three, the three yeah, big things. Those, those resonate strongly with me. That makes sense. Uh, let me ask you a little bit about some of the research that we just touched on before. So we just uh, released to our brand council research indicating that 70% of 70% of consumers have taste tested new brands during the lockdown and more than half plan to stick with some of the new brands they've tried. So the question to you is, do you think we've passed a retailing inflection point and that brick and mortar stores will no longer be a place for uh, a brand or product uh, to be discovered? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, in the report that we gave to the brand council, we, uh, we headlined that section of the, uh, the study, the old store is no more. So mm. you know, we've seen these trends for a long time. Um, you know, in 1995, just to give you some, uh, some interesting factoids, 1995, 97% of all retail sales in the United States took place in brick and mortar stores. Wow. By last year, that was about 83%. So there's been a long, steady rise of alternative, non-brick and mortar um, uh, selling going on. And obviously the D2C revolution has well, revolutionized that and that pace of acceleration uh, has been increasing, but we're definitely seeing the biggest change happening during this downturn. Uh, the biggest trends that we're seeing in retail are the rise of contactless payments, the rise of what the industry calls BOPIS, which stands for buy online, pick up at the store, pick up in store, um, and the virtualization of shopping itself. Um, you know, we had uh, uh, Melissa Grady, who is fantastic. She's the, the CMO of Cadillac um, on our uh, brand council town hall. And um, they started more than a year ago uh, introducing a virtual showroom uh, by which you could book, if you're a buyer, a potential buyer of Cadillac cars, you can book a live online walkthrough with a live online salesperson, you know, to show you everything you want to see about the car. Um, so it's a pressure move for sure. I mean, oh my God! She she said she said on the call there's been a hundred percent increase in the use of it. Uh, GM is considering rolling it out to uh, to other brands. But when you wrap all these things together, um, the BOPIS buy online, pick up in store, contactless shopping, contactless payments, um, and the virtualization of of shopping, you know, AR and VR tools, you're basically looking at a situation 
where uh, Americans are uh, becoming more and more acculturated, and I'm going to invent a word here, more and more tooled, given the tools to, uh, <laughs> to shop at a distance. And I don't think there's, there's any return from that. Not, not, not at all. No return from, um, from this post-store moment. I'm writing that down. We created a word, tooled. Maybe that exists somewhere. I like it. All right, let me ask one last question on brands and then we can uh, potentially move on to other subjects. So private label, not a new phenomenon, uh, been around for a long time, but the impact of private label on the marketplace will, it, I, I would imagine, be significant in an environment with widespread unemployment and impending recession. Look into your crystal ball. What happens to that space uh, in the coming months and years? Well, you know, the, the most interesting aspect of the private label phenomenon over the pretty much three decades that we've seen its rise has been, you know, the transition from it being merely a mechanism for kind of off price, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, off price shopping to being uh, a, an alternative brand mechanism unto itself. Um, and again, this one seems intuitive to me that once you start taking physical stores more and more out of the equation, well, everybody becomes a potential creator of a private label. And it, it, if you back up, take, take the proverbial hundred foot back up and uh, ask, hey, what's really going with the, uh, going on with the D2C phenomenon? Well, what's going on is that the tools to create things, whatever you want, toothpaste, underwear, um, you know, hair coloring, uh, the tools to create those things and distribute them are promiscuously available. You and I, if we want to create a toothpaste brand, we can do it with tools that are available to us online. That's a private label. So uh, I think the, the bigger issue here is not going to be private labelization, which kind of still implies in everybody's minds that, oh, the retailer is now going to have the option of introducing me to his or her store-specific brand. It's that brands themselves become more important in an environment where there are just more and more and more products and brands available. So, so I think that it's going to be much less about price. It's going to be much less about the store as the uh, promoter of the brand and it's going to be much more about uh, that combination of price and features and service and as you know as really the, the 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 substructure of branding itself and how that's going to rise to the top um question you didn't ask that that i want you to ask me is about uh what happens with trade promotions yeah okay you asked i'll okay. ask what okay. happens to trade promotions well i just my arm we're not seeing we're, we're not seeing any evidence of this yet but if you follow the logic, the historic shift that's been taking place over 40 years, um, uh, the, the shifting ratio uh, between the amount of marketing budget spent above the line and the, uh, yeah. and the percentage spent below the line, prim primarily on trade promotions, that starts shifting again. Um, trade promotions was a way for in concentrating retailers to exert their power over the trade by extracting stocking fees and other kinds of financial concessions and investments in order for, to get 
your brand's products onto their shelves. Well, it stands to reason that if physical shelves are no longer as important as they once were, uh, and if discovery is no longer taking place inside the store, that means the ability of the retailer to extract trade promotions also starts declining. And so, uh, and, and in turn, branding and brand marketing and brand advertising across all the, the dimensions, new and old, becomes more and more important. So I'm postulating that we're going to start seeing a, a shift back uh, where a lot of the trade promotion spend is going back into various forms of marketing, uh, some of which would be classically considered above the line and some of which would be classically considered below the line, but there'll be less trade promotion spend. Let, let me push on that for just one second, which, um, which is interesting. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about uh, the live events business and what we have seen happen in the live events business over the past two months has been nothing short of extraordinary. We have seen innovation in virtual events, the likes of which I've never seen before. I mean, so kind of virtual worlds. I mean, it's really amazing what is, what is happening. So is it not terribly dissimilar to think that trade promotion just goes virtual, digital, just takes a different form? Or do you, I mean, I, and obviously it's not a one-to-one -one ratio, but could those dollars be expressed in ways that we just haven't thought of yet? Sure, and it, 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 it's already happening. Look, you know, Amazon uh, is a virtual retailer, and and their Amazon has trade promotions, you know, coming its way. Yep. Um, clearly, as uh, you know, voice-activated devices become, uh, uh, you know, increasingly pervasive as shopping mechanisms. You know, the idea of getting yourself onto uh, Alexa, paying a trade promotions fee to get top listed on Alexa when you say Alexa, um, uh, order me some tissues. You know, that's a real thing as well. Um, and yeah, I think uh, you're, you'll, we will see, we already are seeing, you know, different kinds of payments for different kinds of services. They're not stocking allowances per se, the way they've been in the, they were yeah. in the old days, but they could be different kinds of promotional uh, investments or co-investments. And I think it is gonna be room, uh, a place where we'll see an enormous amount of creativity. Let me let me ask you something. Uh, you're a you're a television um, expert um, and a video expert from uh, from way back. Not that I want to age you. Yeah, appreciate um, that. I have a theory I want to test on you. I think that television is going to save the open web. Now I'm basing this on the spectacular growth of two companies, which has predated the lockdown but it has continued in spades during the lockdown. And those are the Trade Desk and Roku. Trade Desk is basically the programmatic backbone of the open web. And an enormous amount of that growth has been coming from uh, programmatic video. And Roku is, is different. It's the discovery platform for both the short tail and the long tail of digital video. They seem to be, to be kind of two sides of the same coin here. We know, we've done the same research everybody else has done to come to the same conclusion that uh, uh, during the lockdown, there's been an extraordinary amount of consumer experimentation with all manner of video. And our, you know, our research shows that consumers are going to stick with a lot of the new channels that they've found. So what do you think? I mean, is this long tail of video that kind of Roku represents and the trade desk is finding ways to monetize, uh, is that really gonna be the, the savior of the open web? 
It's a, uh, it's a fascinating theory of the case, Randall. I, um, I think that there is some validity to it. Uh, you know, I think that there, we've had this conversation before. I, I have no doubt in my mind that the next, uh, the next surge of growth that we're going to experience in our career lifetimes will be video, uh, for sure, in all of its splendor. Uh, I think that that video um, will come in many different forms, long tail, mid tail, um, fat tail. Discoverability remains a challenge. Like, so, you know, the quintessential, I've got 150 cable channels and nothing to watch. I think that that is something that we still haven't quite cracked uh, in, the, in the way that we need to. I I'm not sure if it's as simple though as that saving the open web. I mean, if you think about um, what is the number one consumed app in CTV, it's YouTube. Uh, so there is absolutely no doubt that consumers will migrate to brands that are that they're kind of familiar with and like, regardless of the platforms in which they reside. I do think that the kind of opportunity for the open web to strut its stuff in the next generation of video actually does give some credence to the theory, but I don't think it's quite as simple or as linear as, as you potentially uh, suggested. You, you, you mentioned YouTube, uh, and in my mind, that calls up uh, something else, and, and that's TikTok. TikTok's been the uh, probably the hottest uh, media property in our world uh, over the past year. Kind of shocks me because I hadn't even heard of TikTok until last July when I went to VidCon, which yeah. you know was always the YouTube Creators Conference, and all anybody wanted to talk about was TikTok. Uh, so uh, I think it was this past week, just last week, uh, Kevin Mayer, uh, who is the uh, the founder and you know quite powerful and successful head of uh, Disney's Walt Disney Company's uh, D to C and international division, uh, the guy who launched Disney Plus, announced that he was leaving Disney um, to become the CEO of TikTok. Um, what would you foresee? Uh, uh, happening to TikTok uh, with a you know, long-time successful uh, media executive in charge? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I, I have two teenage daughters, 15 and 17, so I am not immune to the, uh, the TikTok uh, phenomenon. And I have, I've been smitten by it myself. I find myself um, with my, 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 no, my copious free time, I, I kind of start getting sucked into, you just kind of Flip up, flip up. You could you could have twenty minutes or a half hour go by without even uh, batting an eyelash. I look at what's happening with TikTok, and I I look at it as an, an analogy to what happened with Snapchat. I think there's a lot of similarities. Snapchat was originally a kind of youth phenomenon. It was a communications platform, a way of expressing uh, kind of creativity and and sense of self. Uh, and then they figured out a way of kind of getting more established brands on the platform, a way of, of monetizing. There was some, you know, there were some bumpy rides along the way, but I think they've kind of crack, cracked the code. They've come out the other side of it and it's now a viable alternative for many marketers, not just marketers that are targeting, you know, 17 and 18 year olds, but marketers that are targeting uh, older cohorts as well. I think, not that I know uh, what Kevin's gonna do, I think that you look at the, uh, the usage, you look at the product, and you think about what of those things, you don't wanna ruin the experience, quote unquote, ruin the experience with advertising, but you want to insinuate it in, a, in an organic way in some, in some fashion. So I think that there'll be some product conversations that will happen post haste to try to figure out, there is advertising on TikTok now, it's just not 
you have to really find it. You have to really look for it. I, I, I've spent a lot of time on the platform. I haven't come across very much advertising. They need to find other things to buy that are somewhat commensurate with um, other opportunities for marketers and brands. But I agree with you. I think that's one to watch. Does TikTok have to differentiate itself from, uh, from YouTube or does it just have to be a UGC alternative to YouTube? I think it has to have a unique selling proposition. It has to fill a void that the market is looking to fill. It doesn't have to be a, 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 you know, a brand new thing, but I think it has to be filling something like what's the case to get TikTok on your plan? For YouTube, it was kind of like cost per incremental reach point. Take some money out of linear television, move it to YouTube. You need an analogy in the TikTok world, and I, I'm excited to see uh, what the market comes up with. I think we're almost out of time, but you know, the one thing I wanted to ask you, because you're uh, a renaissance man that you are, what are you, uh, just in terms of like outside of work, what are you reading? Like, what are you kind of uh, spending your time reading or binging, watching? What's your, what's your latest passion? I've been doing less reading than I would like to be, uh, but my, my binging, it's not a passion, it's actually an obsession, because I can't claim it's entirely uh, healthy has been uh, 90 Day Fiancé on- uh, Oh my Lord. Yes, on uh, TLC. And um, uh, uh, Mickey, my girlfriend and I, it, it, is, a, it is our must-see TV at 8 p.m. on Sundays. We even are determined to watch it live for some reason that uh, defies me. I also think it's a, it is a, a genius programming concept and I think that, um, you know, Discovery Networks, which owns TLC and uh, David Zaslav, their CEO, uh, have managed to put together something that is brilliant and potentially the future of television. So, so I'm actually, I watch it at two levels. One is just the prurient interest of the show, which is based around a series of interlocking real life stories of Americans men and women who individually are looking for a spouse in another country. Yeah, that's- I have watched it myself, I have to admit. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's kind of a, uh, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a wild, weird uh, uh, collection of characters with the subtexts around things like American foreign policy and Muslim American relations and Latin American relations. But it's mostly about wacky people and, and <laughs> yes. you know, looking for love. So uh, on that narrative level, it's fascinating. But also, um, they have managed to spin off from that one concept so many flanker shows that yes. it's almost like a, a yes. network unto itself. And what I, what I see TLC and Discovery doing and having done is figuring out in this new era how to turn television programs like 90 Day Fiance into their own platforms. Um, and th and that, that's fascinating to me. How about you? What have you been reading? Well, I'll be a, an absolute juxtaposition to that. So uh, I, as you know, we are um, on the cusp of our upcoming board meeting where we're getting to meet with a whole bunch of Washington, D.C. Uh, luminaries. And uh, Jonathan Carl uh, from ABC News is, is one of them. And I am in the middle of uh, front row at the Trump show. And I have to say, it is absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm absolutely enjoying it. 
So it's uh, it's a little different than 90 Day Fiance, but uh, interesting nevertheless. Yeah, it it it's I I've been using my uh, my uh, TV time as much as possible to get away from yes, uh, yes, you know from the Trump show, but uh, but I have the book and I'm going to dive in and read it before our board meeting next week. David, thank you for joining me on IEB Real, where we've gotten real uh, about a variety of, of topics. Going to uh, come back again next week, find new things to talk about, new things to get real about. Uh, and we invite our audience to come back and uh, send us thoughts and comments and ideas that they want us to take up. So uh, with that, thank you for listening. This has been IAB Real, and it's been real to be with you. Bye.